Hello. Welcome to It's Not Magic, a podcast from Sixth Street about business building that strips away the pretense and gets right to the useful stuff. We use this show to talk to founders and industry leaders and get them to explain in plain English what they set out to do and specifically how they do it. I'm your host, David Steepleman. This is our final episode of season one. I got to tell you, I think it's packed full of useful wisdom. But this comes to the advice I got, which is, Julie, your success, especially as you're a partner and especially in a private equity industry, is going to depend on whether you build teams who take the hill just because it's you. That's Julie Jones. She's the chair of Ropes and Gray, the venerable law firm founded in 1865 and which today is a top tier firm with 1,500 lawyers worldwide. Julie's the first woman to lead the firm, and she became chair at the start of 2020, just as the world and as business leaders were faced with unprecedented challenges. I really enjoyed this conversation. There are a lot of great insights in here, and they principally come from Julie. You'll hear about how she prepared and marketed herself with intention earlier in her career to become one of the preeminent deal lawyers in private equity, how she was one of the inventors of the reverse termination fee, and how she's adjusted from being a lawyer to being a leader. And you'll hear Julie discuss her firm's response to COVID, how she tries to speak authentically on divisive issues, and about the advice she got from Lloyd Blankfein. Like Julie, we have a bias for action around here, so let's get to it. Okay, so it's summertime, and of course, it's 39 degrees and cloudy and foggy in San Francisco, but we have Sixth Street Summer Fellows, you have Ropes and Gray, Summer Associates all over the place, and they're thinking about their lives and what are they going to do and what are they going to work on? And I'm curious, Julie, like when you got to the firm, did you know you wanted to be a, a deal lawyer, a transactional lawyer, or how did you arrive at that? Yeah, it's a great question because law school trains you to be a litigator more than a corporate right. lawyer. But by the time I started, even as a summer associate practicing law, I knew that corporate was for me, David. I loved the pace of it. I loved negotiating things. I liked counseling. It's not like I was counseling in the boardroom or the C-suite when I was a summer associate or a brand new <laughs> associate, but I could see what partners were doing. Yeah. And it just felt like the best combination of skills uh, and, um, and flexibility. And I was an econ major. And so I, you know, partly understanding the business world uh, was, uh, it was a great interest to me. So that's how I ended up in the deal world. But I didn't start out as a private equity M&A lawyer. I started out as an IPO lawyer. Uh, and then my oh. career kind of morphed over the years to doing more and more mergers. And uh, and ultimately, I ended up as principally a private equity deal lawyer. And was that kind of happenstance? You, you saw it or and you got staffed on deals and you just started getting good at it? Or did you kind of point yourself in a direction? I'm thinking about the the summer associate who might be listening to this thinking, how did she do it? And am I supposed to be thinking about what I like to do every day or should I just like kind of go with the go with the wave? Yeah, well, uh, we hit the year 2000 and turned out that, the, you know, tech IPOs were not to be found. And I was at that point a fifth year associate oh. and decided like, wait, there are other things I could do. And I decided I needed to market myself internally a little bit differently uh, by going to partners and saying, hey, I think I could do that. I know the public company world. The private equity industry was starting to morph too. The deals were getting bigger uh, public companies from time to time where the targets, David, and I knew that world. Uh, so I told a lot of people like, hey, I can do that. And turned out I, uh, you know, you fake it until you make it a little bit. Then I, I, you know, I just met the smartest, most interesting, demanding, smartest <laughs> people. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what made it sticky. Uh, you're talking about your, your, your clients or your colleagues or both? 
<laughs> more the clients uh, than the, than the, <laughs> the colleagues, clients. but uh, yeah. but both. You know, you have to be at your best, and there is something that's really exciting uh, about that—the uh, adrenaline that courses through your veins when you're doing tough deals, creating solutions for things. It yeah, you, know, you can't can't match that in other parts of the law world. I think. I, I, I agree with you. Let's linger on on the sort of uh, marketing yourself. I've, I've read elsewhere you've talked about advice that you would give, I think in particular to young women, but young lawyers presumably uh, of all kinds, about building a brand. And what do you mean by that? And, and how did you specifically do that aside from raising your hand and saying, hey, I can do that too? Well, building a brand, I think, involves two things. It is choosing an area of focus of something that you think you'd be good at and that there'll be a need for. And then it involves the elbow grease of dedicating yourself to knowing whatever that area is. Like, you know, there is nothing like elbow grease to advance a career, David. And uh, so it was, in my case, trying to figure out the intersection of, of LBOs and IPOs, reading every SEC release I could, talking to everyone, reading every merger agreement that came out where there was a private equity buyer, trying to understand that world. That's what I mean by the by the elbow grease. And um, and it pays off. So when when you say like, hey, I I think that is a good space for me because I see a need. I I saw a void in that um, in terms of the legal services. And then you couple it with the homework that you need to do to prove yourself. I think um that's such a good point. It's been a theme a little bit of, of our season, knowing your your craft, I guess. But like actually when there's downtime, go do that work. Go figure out who you should talk to, pick up the phone. Uh, I, I think that's 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 super that's super good advice and 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 things things I think people people miss. And then sometimes it's talking to people even outside your own firms to learn more. Yeah. In my case, that meant talking not just to private equity clients and and lawyers at ropes. It was talking to investment bankers and seeing, you know, where they thought the market was headed, talking to CEOs that I'd met. And, you know, that took a little bit of courage on my part and on anyone's part who is when you're pushing yourself to network, I mean, you could be the most extroverted person in the world, uh, but it still kind of takes uh, a, a you know a little oomph to pick up the phone um, or send the text or the email and yeah. and sort of introduce yourself because you're you're putting yourself out there and that there's like vulnerability and some level of like personal risk that feels like it comes with that moment and it never does. And then it, you just tell yourself like, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? They're not going to respond or they're not going to take the call, right? Or it's five or ten minutes, and and that's rarely the case. Most people will help others whenever you ask, especially if they're if you're trying to learn more about what they know about the market. Yeah, what was your what was your pitch as a younger person? You're, I, I, hey, I'm calling up a CEO. That's a, I, I agree. It's kind of an intimidating it's an intimidating uh, prospect. What did you do? I mean, when I would call, uh, I would first um, be humble and say, you know, you may not remember me. I'd start with that, <laughs> but then I would say, I'm trying to learn from you. I find that as long as it's an authentic piece of flattery, that gets you a long way. <laughs> and because people, I do think people like to teach for the most part, uh, you know, if their schedule permits it. So it was always appealing to the teaching instinct. And uh, and then you'd ask an open-ended question. And uh, and then almost always, uh, it would lead to a really good conversation. Not always legal work and not always advancing like, you know, uh, uh, every one of my goals, David, but you just, I learned something from every conversation that I had. 
Do you still have relationships from one of those conversations you had in the past? I have, I feel like I have many, uh, yeah. many relationships that have been sticky because of advice uh, that um, that have given to me in those moments. Um, and, and things that actually stuck around when I became the chair of Ropes and Gray, uh, 2019 was my transition period where yeah. I, um, I wasn't yet in the role, but I had been named as our leader. So some of those CEOs, I was calling back and saying, Hey, I'm not going to ask for five or ten minutes. I'm going to ask for a lunch. <laughs> Can you tell me, uh, like, give me some advice uh, about how to lead an enterprise and uh, and what sort of tips? So um, it's funny. It, not only were they helpful at the time, but they proved to be lasting relationships that I called on again. Uh, and, and I do want to talk about that. I, before we do, though, I want to I want to ask you. I mean, Robeson Gray is a, a leader. It seems to me, in particular, in gender diversity. You're about half women, I think, uh, lawyers-wise. A, th- a third of your partners are, are women, which is not proportional to the, the population, but still way ahead of your peers. That doesn't just happen. So I'm curious, back where we were talking about you in your earlier career, when you popped up at Ropes and Gray in the early to mid-90s, were they already doing things to lay the groundwork for that relative success and absolute success? Or did you get there and you and others were th- saying, Oh yeah, we got to make these changes in the next couple of years because I want to see the firm that you now are leading today. Yeah, I think so. When I started at Ropes, I think our equity partnerships. When I was an associate, uh, um, but our equity partnership was uh, at about twenty percent, and so it grew really substantially over a, a relatively short period of time. That was intentional. I mean, it was intentional in that I was the beneficiary of having some women ahead of me, David, who I think are were groundbreakers. Uh, yeah. And um, they were M&A lawyers who saw the opportunity for women at the firm, and then they put their heart and soul in it. And, you know, I, I think Ropes has, um, we've had an advantage in terms of our practice areas. This might sound counterintuitive because, you know, obviously private equity, uh, which is a massive part of our business, is, is you know, has a high level. Of, I mean, it's disproportionately men, but still private equity is a team sport. And when you serve clients where what they do is a team sport, I think there is an, you know, that advantages women in terms of their career aspirations. And so private equity, we're a big healthcare life sciences firm and uh, also very complex uh, institutional relationships that require really big and broad teams. Um, so, you know, I do recognize that our areas of practice, uh, I think, allowed women to play a very important and welcome role. Uh, and and then we doubled down on supporting women in those success. Uh, you know, when I, I joined our management committee about, at this point, 11 years ago, and I think from the time that I was on our management committee, at least a third, sometimes a half or more of our partnership um, elevations are women, David. And that involves intentionality. It's like, we are going to put our money where our mouth is. We are going to elevate women into the equity partnership. And then that builds on itself. I want to talk about how, how you run a deal. It's like a business unto itself, you know, a little bit. Like understanding the client, understanding their objectives, getting all the resources in place, plotting out the, you know, what, what's going to have to happen over the next number of weeks and months or whatever it is. How did you do that? Did you have a particular approach? And and I'm I'm asking in part because, you know, like that's that's kind of like the business building element. And then I'm going to ask you, like, do you apply some of those same things to running the business of the firm? And because I'm assuming you do, but maybe, maybe I'm thinking about it wrong. 
I know it's a really it's a great question. I I'll, I'll start with some advice I got as a very young partner, and it it came after I got some upward feedback. David, where at least one of the people that I was working with did not like me and said, like, oh, wow, she's so demanding. She's that so That was someone tough. who was working for you? Or yeah, someone, someone who, yeah, okay. Someone who was working for me. And maybe like some people who get upward feedback, uh, my reaction was, oh, well, no, they can't have been right. And it's a demanding job and blah, blah, blah. But this comes to the advice I got, which is, Julie, your success, especially as you're a partner and especially in a private equity industry, is going to depend on whether you build teams who take the hill just because it's you. And how do you get that? You get that by being loyal, by showing them the teaching and training uh, that you think that every associate should get, but requires a partner to do it. So my ability to serve clients well on these big deals involved a lot of groundwork in in training and mentoring over years so that when you have the particularly complex, really thorny projects where you need, I mean, I think SunGuard, which is a deal that I represented the private equity sponsorship group on, I mean, we had 200 plus lawyers working on that deal. Talk about that deal because that's kind of a legendary deal in the industry and that was you. So talk about that. Yeah. Uh, So that deal, um, I learned a lot about negotiating in large groups including <laughs> never never throw a jump ball up when you have uh, when you have multiple parties trying to negotiate uh, negotiate things I um, but one thing I I particularly remember about that is the need to every day wake up and say, my job isn't to be a lawyer. It was certainly that. My job is to be a problem solver. And that's something that I've carried through almost every day of my career and very much as the head of the firm. It's like, okay, how do I need to solve today's problems? How do I need to take things uh, you know, off the plate of, of clients who are also doing something completely new? We, you know, we developed teams um, that were, you know, dealing with probably eight to 10 work streams. I had a system of, you know, you create you create your project management plan, like, you know, a half hour touching base with this team and then that team and then this team and that team. But always coming back to prioritizing what the biggest problems were of the day and knowing that's where my time would be best spent. Um, and, but then again, of course, like having a team of people who, because you had devoted yourself to them, you knew would take the hill and give you their, their best. Uh, um, so th- there's those team elements. And then there's just creating new solutions like the reverse termination fee, which no one had done in a private equity deal. And David, I will say the um, I remember when we negotiated the uh, the fee that the seller thought that they had gotten this amazing deal from the private equity firms and uh, and saying, yeah, are you guys sure you're going to agree to a reverse termination fee? And we said yes, and we hung up the phone. And we were—I don't ever remember dancing in my office for winning a term, <laughs> but we were dancing in the office saying we just bought ourselves an option. And I don't think they realized what we what we just did. There's some satisfaction into doing things that are really new and novel in the legal world as well. I kind of want to take both sides of that conversation. It's an eleven and a half or twelve billion dollar LBO in when two thousand. Yeah, exactly two thousand four. Mm-hmm. So that's like has to have been one of the, if not the largest deal ever at that point. So, and you're in the middle of it, and you've got your team, and you want to teach your team. Like, are you taking the time in the middle of that to like sit down and say to the mid level associate, 
I want to talk to you about how you would draft this, or let me tell you why I marked it up this way, or because that's that's very disciplined and very hard to do. A great investment, but how did you think about that? Yeah, one of the things I did for that uh, project was I commandeered a couple of conference rooms, and <laughs> instead of just sitting in my office and letting people join <laughs> join in it, it was setting yeah. up a computer using a larger space, having more people participate in, like, just be listening in, having those sidebar conferences so that you could expand, like, physically expand your reach. Um, you know, it's kind of funny to think about now with so many people working remotely so often, yeah. uh, but how critical that was because much of the learning, given the pace that we were at, was happening by listening, getting a literally a 30-second teaching moment, delivering that, and then moving on to the next issue. And then every day, uh, recaps. Um, one of the things that no matter how busy we were, we started our day with a group meeting and we ended our day with a recap. And that proved really uh, good and dedicated times to teach and train. That's really smart. You mentioned before how you, you did a little bit of an advice tour as you were kind of transitioning to the seat. And that was in 2019. And you, you took the seat, I think, starting in, officially in 2020, which is unbelievable timing, <laughs> like, you know, heading into COVID, heading into everything. So was any of that advice, did you throw all that advice out the window or was it useful? It was great advice. I, mean, I got a, a piece of advice from uh, Lloyd Blankfine um, and it was sort of, he was speaking at a client event and I asked him how he had managed Goldman during uh, the financial crisis. And he said, well, the very first piece of advice in any crisis, communicate, communicate, communicate. And so, I mean, that I remembered from starting in March saying we need to transform the way we're communicating uh, within the firm and, and especially within the partnership. You know, there's just so much uncertainty about the safety issues and also the potential performance of financial issues that our clients would face, that we could face as a law firm. Uh, and so we just said, we're going to talk every week. Look, this is we're just going to gather our partners together and share all the information, all the information we have. So that was one piece of very concrete advice that I remembered. I, I had another CEO who reminded me, don't have all of your day be back-to-back -back meetings, Julie, because for the leader, whether you're leading a deal or leading an enterprise, there's always a crisis because our jobs are really hard and, and they're unpredictable. You have to leave buffer time at least a couple times, an hour or two, completely uns unscheduled and say, this is my crisis management <laughs> time. And that was advice that I think about all the time. And remember every day that I am scheduled back to back, I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> here comes the unexpected. Uh, but I got amazing, amazing advice along the way from some trusted advisors who had been the heads of enterprises themselves. So far, I'm as we're, we're talking, I'm seeing a through line of like your life as a deal lawyer and 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 a lot of the the skills and and insights that you that you kind of distilled down to becoming a leader of the firm. Are there things that you had to get good at that you just had never done before? New muscles? Yes, I think there were a lot of new muscles, including I you know I think as a person. I'm relatively impatient and I have a bias to action. Yeah. And, and at some points, I needed to slow down to make sure that I was absorbing all of the information, especially when they were areas that I didn't know as well. Like, I, I mean, spending hours 
making sure that I understood actually how our technology systems worked, both because when your business becomes entirely remote, you need to understand how you're operating and because the people that are doing that work deserve to be heard. And and uh, for a moment for their, the head of the enterprise to understand where their worries are and yeah. share them. Yeah. And, and I think at the beginning, I you know just thought, well, if there's nothing I can do with this information, I probably shouldn't spend my time in this meeting. I need to act, act, act. Because, you know, as a lawyer, that is the case that you have to be doing that. And as a leader, there's a bit more time you need to spend on on listening and just being there to support people. Um, and action isn't always needed to achieve that part of your job description. So what does that look like? That's that's listening and emoting. It's uh, and I'm not I'm not diminishing that. I shouldn't say it that way. But yeah. you know what I mean? Or, or what is that? What does that look like for you? Yeah. No, I think it's making sure that uh, whether it's a whether it's a process function at the firm or it's an area of practice that you know wasn't a part of my personal history as a lawyer, that I am dedicating part of my schedule to spending time with them and a- just asking them to tell me where are their worries uh, and and what's their vision and strategy, where's the opportunity, and and you know occasionally even just hearing that smart people can add some value. And they can also remind the person on the other side that they're not alone in shouldering those worries. And they're definitely not alone in knowing like what we need to do to seize those moments and those opportunities. And um, so, yeah, I, I think, it, I mean, it comes down to just pure time, listening, and then trying to gather those insights. And I, the other thing I would say that's different about being the head of the firm, even then leader of a deal is... I have a bit of a reputation for being detail-oriented and a tiny <laughs> bit of a control freak, and I have to resist that temptation. Ropes is a there were a two billion dollar enterprise. We've got three thousand people, and I can't do everything, and that takes for me just a little bit of courage, letting go and relying on your ability to have great people who can spot the issues and bring the right ones to you. But I will say that is something that I need to continue to work on because uh, I'm not perfect at it. And uh, but to you know to have this organization succeed, I really, I absolutely need to operate with um, with letting there be decision making at a localized level on and you know on issues that are appropriate to their job responsibilities. I think that's a, a challenge that I face. I'm not running as big an organization as you are and I'm doing it with a lot of partners. But I, I think we hear that from founders and leaders in the conversations that we've been having. You are good at something and then you get elevated to this position where you're doing other things and you're not doing the things that you were good at and you feel like you probably would be able to do just as well if not better than anyone else is doing them if if you have some healthy sense of ego and hopefully not over ego and it's hard and then you have to set up i find you have to set up systems to make sure that you're hearing what's going on you're getting leverage for yourself and you're letting people make decisions but you're also able to kind of parachute in and be helpful first of all is that right do you, do you think that's right? And, and then if, if it is, how do you do that? Like what's what's your system? So I absolutely agree and and think that's right. And you also need to resist the satisfaction. You're a doer. Um, uh, I know it from having seen you in action and I am too. There's satisfaction that comes from that. And one of the yeah. things I learned early on is that actually may just be self-satisfaction uh, yeah. and resist the instinct that like gives you a you know a bit of a you know juice uh, to to get something done. But in terms of the systems that I put in place when I became the head of the firm, it was broadening the circles of 
influence around me. Uh, I'll give you some concrete examples. We have a management committee. They're extraordinary. They're wonderful. They're highly skilled. And we had always met. That group of 12 partners is a tiny subset of our partnership. I need to form some kitchen cabinets that include the leaders of our large practice groups and meet with them regularly, systematically. I need to gather our senior partners, um, people who had been practice group leaders and and beyond that, uh, but were no longer in that role. We need to meet you know, every month and get their insight. And I need to set in place systems that allow that. I need to meet with our support leadership team about once a month in order just to have these hearing tours. So and again, process is very strange for a lawyer to have process be a weakness, but I found like I I, I absolutely needed to insist on those things um, because I didn't think it was my strength, but so that I had the system and then couldn't get caught up in the, oh, I'm really busy and I'll get to that next month. I'll go sit down with these, you know, very important uh, and helpful senior partners in Q2, not Q1. I, you know, calendaring all of that out uh, was very beneficial to me. And as a result of all that process, I'm getting perspectives from different parts of the firm that I I don't think we've gathered systematically before. I think that being intentional about that, I think is, uh, and and you're right, calendaring it out, like actually looking forward and saying, I'm going to be doing this for the next year systematically is not the way I thought about organizing my life, you know, prior to being in a seat like this. Sounds like you didn't either. Because uh, you're going from deal to deal, uh, but it's so important, and and sticking to it is so important. Actually, I think we're kind of dancing around a little bit some of the issues that I, 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 the the law firm business. It's a hard business, like it's a the business model is kind of if you think about it, it's kind of crazy, right? You've got you said three thousand people, you have like fifteen, half of them are lawyers, half of them are are, are non legal staff. Yeah, um, fifteen hundred lawyers. Your product is their judgment, which means they've got to be around for a while to develop that judgment. You got to keep them you know, so that you, is their working relationship, is their client list, and they're billing by the hour. And so you want to maximize their ability to do that. You also don't want to kill them. They're all very opinionated. They do different things. They're experts. You're not an expert in what they do. When you got into the seat, you know, pre-COVID and you know, thinking about strategy, how did you think about the strategy of the delivery of legal services? And were you trying to change it? Were you trying to, what are you going for? So one of the things that I have tried to do is reorient people about what our job is because, you know, I think, you know, they, they articles I've read said that the level of depression uh, and anxiety amongst lawyers might be the highest in the professional world, mm. and I, I think part of that comes from having a job where the only thing you're selling is your personal time. At, at points, it, there is something that is sort of screwed up about that model uh, because yeah. it is it's finite and it feels like they're potentially is no relief from the demands of that job. How do you confront that? It's making people feel a higher sense of purpose in two ways. Um, And this is what I mean by reorienting. We started trying to tell people that being a lawyer at Ropes and Gray, it's about practicing with purpose. And that really means what we're doing for the community. We're doing great things for our clients, uh, but a part of all of our job which offsets those demands is that you can use your skill to devote yourself to causes that you care about and really change the world. And that's not, um, I, I don't think that's an exaggeration of what lawyers can do. So that's one part of reorientation. The other part of reorienting the way people think about their role as a ropes and gray lawyer is that our job isn't to bill by the hour. Our job is to develop the strongest client relationships in the world. And if you had to ask me what our vision and our mission is, it's 
build the strongest client relationships. And so when you think about your job as relationship oriented, then like, okay, yeah, my job is to solve that client's problem. My job is whether that's buying the company, whether it's, you know, getting out of that litigation. There are a lot of different ways you can think about problem solving for lawyers. But if you start to say like, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to think about what Josh Peck needs. I'm going to think about what you, David, need or, you know, whoever the human is. Think about it as a human level. Then you can put your feet on the ground and feel pretty fired up about the day as opposed to filling out yeah. a timesheet. Um, now, you know, is that perfect? By no means. The you know attrition rate is always really high in law firms. It's a model of, of you know, people learning their craft and then going uh, to, to work for clients or elsewhere. Turnover is really high and it's never been higher uh, during, you know, during 2020 and 2021. We've the demands of the job have really tested people's resolve to stay in them. I, I I may be a contrarian. I think that's temporary. I, I think, uh, you know, I think we're already seeing evidence of the fact that the right. attrition is down and that ultimately that this being a lawyer in an elite law firm can be a really rewarding and exciting, exciting job. I think you and we had similar uh, perspectives on one aspect of that, which like was like the work from home and the transition back from work from home. And you saw people say, well, you're going to be four days in, three days in, two days in, what are you going to do? And I'm going to choose my employer, whether I'm, I'm going to stay here, you know, based on that. And I know our perspective was, you got to be together. We can talk about how many days, but you got to be together. That's that's more rewarding. It's how we get better work done for our clients. It's how we learn. Oh, I completely agree. I've often said to people, our job being a lawyer in the kind of firm you're at, it's being a stage actor, not a TV actor. <laughs> and and <laughs> right. there, are, there are two different jobs. But for us, we know what we're about. You, you have to be together for many reasons. There are some fundamental benefits of teaching and training. But part of it, David, is the it's the energy that you derive from having humans around you that helps you confront the, the tough moments that we all experience. And like, I think we're crazy if we're not recognizing that, uh, you know, there's a reason that no law firm or any professional services firm that I can think of with success was built as a virtual entity. It, it is a people business. And so I keep coming back to that. I, you know, if you had to ask me where my worries are, um, one of them is, am I calling that right? Like, is will the workforce, uh, you know, has it been sort of fundamentally altered by the experience of the pandemic, people's confidence that they can operate remotely as effectively? Um, like, am I going to get our people there fast enough? Uh, and, you know, the answer is, I don't know. Uh, we're, we're sure, like, we're trying, uh, uh, like hell, in trying to recognize also the benefits of some of the remote work and giving people a way to... Yeah. Yeah, you know, do the things they need to do to to be there for their families more effectively as well. And and I think there's a there's an effective middle ground, but I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, I we we agree with you. I, and last thing I'll say about that is is the ability to transition quickly at the beginning of the pandemic to working remotely and to communicating well was drawing on a goodwill bank that we had built up as a result of being together in the office and being together as teams. And and you saw that deplete and you got to recharge it. And I agree with you, retaining some of the benefits of flexibility and not being so, not that we ever, we ever were, but like so huge to FaceTime or to, to being in the office at particular times, take care of your life, do what you got to do. But being together has got to be the, be the priority. You were talking about, you know, 
having a purpose is the thing. And, and, and again, that's another theme that we're hearing from our guests that we've had conversations with in whatever business and at whatever stage of their career and whatever stage of their life cycle in the business. Like that, that's ultimately what people come back for. And it's not the kind of details around compensation or whatever, though obviously compensation is important. And you were talking about, you know, clients and then also like doing things that you care about. Long build up to this question, which is Robson Gray is done some amazing pro bono work. You, you guys worked on the Obergefell case, which which legalized same-sex marriage. You've done other things uh, representing, I, I think, you know, inmates at Rikers. Those are am- amazing causes. Are you finding that you're, it's harder and harder to navigate what you select to do because the world is so divisive and that you're like, you're going to irritate some clients. Maybe you're going to irritate some of your personnel. How do you approach that? Yeah, it's a great question, and boy, have I been thinking about it regularly yeah, sure. over the last um, a couple weeks. I, you know, with the Dobbs case, uh, for example, uh, you know, I as a person uh, believe strongly in reproductive rights. You know, I know that that's not uniform in the ropes and gray community. And so even before I turned to pro bono, I'll just talk about like, how do you approach yeah. that as a leader? I think for a long period of time, especially law firm leaders would say, we say nothing. We say nothing. I don't think that is where where humans are right now. And uh, but I was in writing my my personal views on the worries I had about the uh, the Dobbs ruling. I knew that there was risk that I would alienate people. And by sharing those views, ultimately, though, I decided you can't not, you have to be authentic. In order to be an effective leader, you have to be open. And then you have to respect others, uh, and which is what I always try to do. And so I, you know, listen, there were people in our in the Ropes and Gray community who were unhappy that I, I wrote a note of significant concern about the finding. And then I talked to them and said, here's why I believe this. I understand where you are. But that that does tie to pro bono causes because, you know, I think that a lot of our community would say cause Ropes and Gray champions, um, uh, immigration and and asylum cases, whether that were those, you know, there were a lot of cases on the border uh, during the Trump administration, and you know, I'm sure there are some members of our community who have strong feelings that that is, you know, that our lawyer time is a firm asset that shouldn't be devoted to a cause that they viewed as um, as sort of democratic or, or liberal leaning. My answer is like Ropes Gray is always going to fight for civil liberties and civil rights um, wherever those are, and we just we're going to need our people to respect the views of the of the lawyers who want to spend their personal time doing that. And and so that ultimately, uh, for the first time that I can remember, we're taking on pretty significant set of cases about reproductive rights, um, and that's because we have four hundred lawyers who within an hour asked to donate their time to those causes. And I've got to recognize that too. Um, yeah. So there's a little bit of leadership courage uh, and, and, and time that comes with making sure that other parts of our community don't feel that I am disrespecting them or their views and, and finding things that are you know consistent with some of our other missions where they can give their time to something that they care about. Because that's equally true. There are causes they care about. There's a lot they can do to help the world and are uh, with the Ropes and Great Pro Bono Program. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for that. You're the one person who we're talking to who is at the helm of a really old organization. Ropes and Gray was founded in what, 1865? You must be one of the five oldest like law firms of your caliber national. I, I don't know. Yeah. So 
Do you think about the tradition of the firm? Do you think about its role in American legal society in Boston? And how does that inform any of the things that you do day to day? Uh, so it so Ropes and Gray um, was founded in 1865 by two best friends from Harvard Law School. And I say that only because when, when I look at the firm's history, I am reminded that a lot of your ethos and your value structure, you can point down, you can point back to what was a part of your firm for a really long time and realize there are things you never want to lose, like that sense of like this friendship and, and partnership. But there's a lot of ropes and grays history that, you know, it's time to move on from. Like in, in 2012, I was only the third member ever of our management committee who was a woman, a 150-year-old institution, and uh, and I was the third ever. Uh, and so that tells me something about a uh, heritage that of, you know, male dominance that that needed confronting. And so I, you know, I am conscious of trying to respect and in fact, admire the stability of the institution and the great things about it, but never being afraid to change it. Because, you know, I, I think that values uh, can stay the same, but the way that they're applied has to shift based on where your employee population is and where the world is. Um, but in terms of like us as a business, one of the things that's been interesting about ropes is we've always followed the giants. And by that, I mean, Ropes and Gray represented when, when educational institutions like Harvard controlled a lot of assets. Um, that was where Ropes and Gray, you know, spent its time advising. When certain areas of the corporate world were dominant, that's where Ropes and Gray was. Um, the Johnson family, uh, several of them were associates at Ropes and Gray, and it's and you know there. So we understood that asset management uh, was where asset accumulation was happening. So it is interesting to also understand there's something about our institution where we've always followed the money. Um, and that has been, a, you know, that's been a successful model for us as a client service organization. I think there's a lesson there of you can look at your history with clear eyes. It doesn't mean you want to burn things down and you take what's good from it and you, and you move on from other things. Let, let's talk about the future for a second. It has been an interesting time for all of us as humans. Uh, and we have this commonality of having lived through a pandemic together. And I, I think there's opportunity there because uh, it's hard to think like you know, other than war, David, of something that has been so significant to human existence. Now, for you and for Sixth Street and for me and Ropes and Gray, a big part of the challenge was navigating the incredible demands on people's time. You know, in addition to the safety issues that people felt, yeah. like people have been through a lot. And while sometimes that feels very heavy, like, oh my gosh, we have all these challenges. I can't believe I took over during, you know, these horrible times. I'm looking at it in a different, uh, you know, in a different way saying it, it is a uniquely human challenge and businesses that can do and address those issues the best are going to win. Like, use the moment to support your people, hold on to them, win the talent war, and then you win it all. So, I think that's a really good point. Actually, I'll make this my last question for you, Julie. There's all the things that you just talked about, and then you have to create boundaries for yourself so you can continue to be a an effective leader and, and thoughtful and creative. And it's true for everybody, but maybe in particular for you. How, how are you doing that? How are you managing that personally? It's hard not to be very intense uh, about a job where you feel like there are, hey, there's 3,000 people that are depending on me. Um, but 
you know, I've developed techniques and I encourage everyone listening to to do so. Like there are periods of like, oh, I can't even get my run in because I have to do this, that. And then I just said, forget it. Like it, it I have to run. That clears my head. Uh, it's fundamental to my um, keeping anxiety down and worries down. And so the boundaries, I'm I'd be misrepresenting if I said I was a great example of uh, of boundary yeah. setting uh other than to learn like about what helps you best confront whatever anxieties you hold as a person. So I like, think about it, know what that is. I know for some people uh it, you know it's it it's not just running, it's some other form of exercise and uh but make your list and then stick to it because that's an investment in yourself. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. I'm going to I'm going to leave it there other than to say I always love talking to you Julie. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh I think our listeners are going to uh really benefit from listening to you and um and we'll we'll talk soon I hope. Thank you for letting me join you. This has been really fun. That was Julie Jones. She joined us for a conversation on July 6, 2022. We learned so much in the time that she was with us. First of all, we talked about the importance of creating systems and discipline, especially in the heat of battle, around training teams and how it pays off not just for you personally as a leader, but for your team and for the entire enterprise. Second, I think she echoed one of the secrets that we've learned over the course of this season for effective leaders, and that is do your homework, spend the time, be prepared, read up on stuff, and seek out advice from people who you think know what they're talking about. I also love the vision of re-envisioning the provision of legal services by connecting it to a sense of purpose. And finally, I think we learned that as a leader, part of your job is not to shy away from being human and how it's a good thing to lead authentically and with empathy, especially on difficult issues. Thanks to Julie from myself and everyone at Sixth Street for joining us for such an engaging conversation. And believe it or not, that's a wrap on season one. Keep an eye out for the breakdown on the themes we've developed from the great guests on our first six episodes. And thank you to those guests, to Evan Smith, to Ambassador Michael McFall, Sean Mendy, Janice Chen, Igor Rosenblatt, and Julie Jones for their time and insight. Stay tuned for season two. Those conversations will begin in the fall of 2022. You've been listening to It's Not Magic, a Sixth Street podcast. You can read more about our guests on SixthStreet.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please share it and follow at Sixth Street News on Twitter for more on the show and our firm. Thanks to Sixth Street's production team, Patrick Clifford, Ritvi Shah, Kate Hannock, and our summer fellow, Nami Lindquist, for putting this together with sound engineering by Stephen Colon. Our theme song is It's Not Magic, an original song from Patrick Dyer-Wolf. Once again, I'm David Stiepelman. Thanks for listening. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Sixth Street, and Sixth Street is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of or listening to this podcast is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Sixth Street. Please see additional disclosures on our website for more details.